Hi, Dave Emery here. This is, for the record, program number 1316, Fireside Rant about the Gaza War and the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict, Part 1. This is being recorded on December 15th of the year 2023. Before getting into the main body of the program, first of all, the latest 32 gigabyte flash drive containing all of my work. For the record, the through, for the record, 1310, basically all of my life's work, printed and recorded, through for the record, 1310, including all of my work on the coronavirus, that is now available. I get no money whatsoever from that, and it is available for a very modest tax-deductible contribution, and I think that as sentient beings, we have a responsibility to preserve the record about what happened for the future generations, and... Uh, that is a, an important thing to do. So uh, at the top of each written for the record description and at the top of each food for thought post, there is a link that will enable you to obtain that 32 gigabyte flash drive. And again, there's a mini library of old anti-fascist books on easy-to-download PDF files. So uh, please do get that flash drive. And again, I get no money whatsoever from that. Also, uh in this increasingly smartphone-dominated age, podcasts are increasingly uh, a way that people prefer to consume. For the record, and Sister Station, WFMU, is now podcasting before the record shows. So if you would like to subscribe to the... Uh, for the WFMU podcast of For the Record, it is... Uh, there are links, again, at the top of each written food for thought, each written for the record description and each food for thought post that contain those, uh, that contain links to get the podcast. And also be aware that, uh, please do check the SpitfireList.com website on a regular basis for the very important and, uh, generally brilliant comments by our contributing editor, Tara Fractal, who presents a lot of really important printed information to supplement what is in the broadcasts. Now, uh, this is the first program I've recorded in almost two months. The last program I recorded was on October 13th. I have been uh, afflicted with a very painful and inconveniencing, though not life-threatening, uh, medical condition, and it has uh, it brought everything to a halt. I'm still kind of uh, ragged around the edges, but anyway, I'm uh, uh, easing back into things, and I'm, I'm definitely on the mend, but that is why I have not produced a new program since October 13th, and the, uh, again, very painful, inconveniencing, though non-life-threatening medical condition was kicking in at that point, and I had to have a lot of editing done on that program. It was hard to do. So that is why I have not recorded a program in a couple a couple of months. Now, uh, as of October 7th, of course, the conflict in the Middle East uh, was ignited. Uh, the... Next to the last program I recorded was on Monday, October 9th, and then uh, a week, uh, well, not, not uh, a week later, that Friday, I uh, recorded, uh, for the record, uh, 1315, and that was it. In the interim, uh, of course, the Middle East has exploded. Uh, the As I've said before, and as I will uh, say again in this series and uh, document, I 
do not like discussing the whole, what used to be called the Arab-Israeli conflict since the early 70s has become the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, genuinely speaking, I get it from both sides, and I have never seen a subject. It, it's a very complicated subject to really do it justice. You have to understand the politics of empire in the 19th century. You really have to go back to what was going on during World War One. And you know, Americans don't know anything about World War One. You have to understand uh, what was going on with the Ottoman Empire. The Americans don't know anything about I mean, you know, World War One. You know, they have no idea what that was about. You talk about the Ottoman Empire to the average American, they think you're talking about a retail furniture outlet. Again, they're completely clueless. Uh, but one of the things that is so. Um, incendiary about it, and also one of the things that makes it a uh, very distasteful subject for me personally to talk about, is that you have fascism deeply embedded on both sides, and both sides react with the most reflexive viciousness, if you bring that up. Uh, the Palestinian, pro-Palestinian side get really bent out of shape when you point out all of the uh, Nazi and fascist connections to the Palestinian movement, going back really to uh, the pre-World War II period. And uh, the pro-Israeli side get completely bent out of shape when you talk about the fascists uh, in the Zionist, fascist elements in the Zionist movement, which are ascendant at this point in time, and one of the things that we're going to talk about in this series that you will never hear anywhere else is discussion of bombing Jews. What? What did he say? What? Doing these programs is interesting. Uh, A number of years ago, I had a call uh, after my show, and uh, a guy said, you know, I've been listening to you for a long time, and generally, you know, a lot of the things you say struck me as far out at first, but, you know, I came to, to agree with what you were saying, but the, the, this latest thing is just too outrageous. What makes you think the Mormon church is part of the underground? Like, he thought I was talking about the, the remarkable and deadly Mormon organization, but, but the Mormon organization, um, but that's sort of a, an indication. Uh, I'm going to talk about some of the... Uh, things in this. It would probably be a two-part series. Uh, I am not going to go into things nearly as exhaustively as I could. Uh, I'm going to give an overview of some things, and uh, people can basically uh, do a little bit of their own research on this one. I mean, it, 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 I'm going to put in a bunch of links, but uh, uh, I have never seen a more fundamentally anti-intellectual manifestation. Also, for most of my uh, now roughly 45 years on the air, I've been a supporter of Israel. However, that is no longer the case. After, you know, maybe the decade, decade and a half ago, I'm not a machine, I don't know how to switch. But Israel has gone fascist, as has basically the, 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 the dominant element in the international Zionist movement. They are not. The Zionist movement is not entirely fascist, but Israel is dominated by fascists. I'm going to go into that, and uh, so is the right wing of the Zionist movement. But if you talk about that, you get labeled an anti-Semite or what have you. And again, this is just um, a grotesque thing. As, for example, the New York Times actually had an article 
uh, this past week where they, they asked, is anti-Zionism always anti-Semitic? Well, there's no reason why it should be. Not agreeing with uh, the state of Israel or even the existence of Israel doesn't mean you're an anti-Semitic, doesn't mean you're a bigot. Um, it is simply a political and philosophical question. Uh, there is, however, a lot of the, uh, quote, anti-Zionism, or it's really anti-Semitism, and they just, uh, people are unloading in that direction. But generally, um, I've, I've never seen a more heated and less intellectually oriented discussion, and uh, I'm going to... Uh, highlight a few of the aspects that don't get discussed, and also basically talk about my utter revulsion at the entire subject, and <laughs> frankly, uh, both sides of the uh, the issue. Um, there are fascist elements deeply embedded on both the Israeli and the Palestinian side, and uh, I suspect that what I call the underground right is manipulating this uh, to the great benefit of uh, Ultimately, the rehabilitation of Hitler's reputation through the uh, decades and the centuries. Uh, but uh, good luck talking about these things with most people. One of the things that spurred this topic, I got uh, an email, and I actually didn't even open this till uh, I, I missed it because I was again I was <laughs> hurting for certain in the parlance of the time, and I uh, was just you know I had to ease back into getting things done, and I wasn't even able to clear this comment till about two or three weeks after it was posted on uh, this on November fifth of this year, and I'm not going to mention the name of this particular uh, writer. Uh, I also. In this internet age of bots and uh, what have you, uh, artificial intelligence, it, 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 uh, it would not be difficult for someone to imitate an actual uh, Patreon subscriber and uh, subscriber to the uh, shows. Uh, however, this, it, the, the comment was a real person with a real uh, uh, Twitter and or quote X unquote or uh, uh, email address, and, and they they put it, to me like this. Dave, why aren't you talking about the ongoing Holocaust in Palestine leaving 10,000 Zionist figure or 20,000 Palestinian figure dead and many tens of thousands wounded, maimed, and dying? Give me a good reason why I shouldn't drop my Patreon support for, for you. Can you really be that soft on the state of Israel? Quote, quote, Israel, unquote, sick. Uh, that is a very good example. Uh, of what I'm talking about. Now, for openers, as I mentioned, uh, I haven't produced any programs since October 13th. The uh, war began on October 7th. I did shows on October 9th and October 13th. And uh, it is, uh, there's been a lot of uh, things that have fallen out, uh, you know, although there were certainly atrocities on both sides. Uh, it turns out that there was uh, the... Atrocities, as reported in the Western and Israeli press, are not uh, you know not not as advertised. You know the notion that uh, Israeli women were raped by Palestinian men, and the, the whole beheaded Israeli baby thing has been discredited. And it turns out that at both the Nova Music Festival and some of the kibbutzim, uh, where there was a large loss of life, there were intense firefights, including uh, the 
engagement of Israeli armor and attack helicopters, and uh, you know they 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 do a lot of damage. So there, there was quite a bit of uh, quite a few casualties inflicted by the Israeli side. One of the reasons why I don't entirely discount the possibility that this uh, critic could be a bot is that I have not done any programs since October 13th. I have, however, since this person claims to be a subscriber to the Patreon site, I have covered the uh, Israeli-Palestinian, the Gaza war at considerable length on my Patreon site because I have three talks a week that I can do so I can cover a lot more. I've also covered a lot of other things as well. So if the person is really a Patreon subscriber. They would know that I have been covering uh, the Israeli-Palestinian Gaza war on Patreon at considerable length. I'm going to do a couple of shows here, but uh, put in some links. But uh, there are other things going on as far as loss of life. <laughs> uh, I'm going to update the coronavirus uh, situation, and uh, to make a long story short. Uh, the pandemic isn't over. The, the mild forms of disease produce permanent, serious, uh, debilitating changes to people's immune systems and so forth. But they don't notice that at at uh, once. And as as uh, one blogger put it, in an hourglass, all of the sands don't fall through the all of the grains of sand don't fall through the neck at the same time. What is taking place with coronavirus and the Normalization of infection is spectacular, and it, it, it represents a fundamental shift in the direction of, of our civilization toward darkness. And I hope I can do it justice, but uh, in terms of the loss of life, <laughs> a whole lot more than uh, have been slaughtered in Gaza. One of the things that I have generally found about the Gaza war, it has hardened people on both sides. Those who are pro-Palestinian are more militantly so, and those who are pro-Israeli are, are continue to be pro-Israeli, and they dismiss uh, an awful lot of you know, UN propaganda or whatever. And again, uh, I, for most of my life, have been a supporter of Israel, but Israel has now gone fascist, and that will no doubt sit well. It was, that will not sit well with the pro-Israel crowd, but I'm going to talk about some of that uh, in this series. Uh, and in, on the Palestinian side, they've really always uh, been fascist, the leadership. However, the Palestinian leadership, which is fascist as hell, is not the Palestinian people. And, and watching the butchery that's going on in the Gaza war has... Uh, been a truly horrifying thing. I, I don't see how anyone could fail to be moved by that. The only possible way out of this, and I don't think there's going to be a way out of this. I think this is, this is the end. I, I think this was uh, deliberately. I, I think it may very well have been deliberately precipitated, uh, and I, I, I'm convinced that Israel knew this was coming. Certainly, they had advanced warnings. Egypt warned them. Their own intelligence services had warned them. Freelance photographers had warned them. The CIA had warned them, and uh, so they had plenty of warning. There was shorting on the Israeli stock market, which we're going to talk about, uh, the, the Israeli stock market, that is, in this series. And so uh, I, I think that this whole thing may very well have been uh, 
not only envisioned by the Netanyahu government, but deliberately precipitated by them, deliberately allowed to happen. Now, whereas Netanyahu was tremendously embattled and under fire, there is discussion now that, uh, well, he'll, after the war, he'll win the war, then he'll step down. But there has been a national unity government formed after that. Basically, the Israelis are closing ranks against the common enemy, and I suspect that was part of the goal from the beginning. Uh, to give you an idea of, of how of the, the, the sheer folly involved in this, uh, one of the things that I have spoken about over the decades, and that is the fact that the first leader of the Palestinian national movement was Hajamin al-Husseini, who held the rank of the major general in the Waffen-SS. And... Uh, I've been, you know, I've had people saying, and it's anti-Arab racism, which, first of all, it's, it's like talking about the, the lab leak hypothesis in coronavirus. It's, it, it's, it's an invalid conceptualization. Um, Arabs are Caucasians. That's not anti-Arab racism, and it's not racism in all its history. Uh, in the Balkans alone, there are three Muslim Waffen SS divisions include the 13th or Hanjar division, the 21st or Skanderbeg division, and the 23rd or Kama division. Uh, there's also the Waffen group of the SS Krim, the forebears of the uh, Chechen guerrillas who were fighting against uh, uh, Russia about 20 years ago, with, with the aid, by the way, of the Bank Al-Takwa. Uh, I did a program where I talk about the World Muslim Congress, and after the first meeting of that organization, a Saudi-sponsored organization, in 1952, the Grand Mufti concluded his address by saying, we will meet, ne- we will meet next sword in hand on the sands of either Palestine or Kashmir. That's 1952. Well, there's been a whole lot of progress since then, hasn't there, both in Palestine and Kashmir? I mean, my goodness. Um, I don't even like you know, using the term Palestine. It, it derives from uh, Philistine. You know, the, the Romans developed the use of that term. I mean, I just don't don't do Philistines. You know, it's not not my thing. You know. uh, hello, uh, yeah. Uh, can you give me Goliath's phone number? Uh, yeah, I'd like him to work uh, uh, security for my brother-in-law's bachelor party. Oh, okay, thanks a lot. Uh, hello, Goliath, this is David. Uh, man, I just don't do Philistine, sorry. Um, and generally the howling ignorance on both sides, which is getting even worse, uh, a little bit worse on the uh, pro-Palestinian side, but uh, the Israelis are doing everything they can to catch up. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that kind of really says it. Uh, 1952, we will meet next sword in hand on the sands of either Kashmir or Palestine. And, well, there hasn't been a whole lot of progress since then in either place. And uh, that is uh, how it goes. Uh, I'm going to illustrate one of the aspects of the Israeli and Palestinian conflicts and take a look at fascist elements on both sides. This is an example of the kinds of things that simply don't enter into consciousness. And uh, basically, the, the anti-intellectualism one finds on both sides, particularly the pro-Palestinian side, but the, the, the pro-Israeli side is pretty ignorant too. They don't talk about this. Now, one of the many things I've spoken about, I've spoken about this in numerous programs, for the AFA program number three, and for the record, program number 558, and that was the putting together of a group of 
Nazis and Nazi war criminals to form the Egyptian Intelligence Service, the Egyptian General Staff, and the person who was tabbed by Alan Bullis and uh, Reinhard Galen to do this was none other than Otto Skorzeny, an SS colonel, and one of the uh, primary movers in the post-World War II uh, SS underground, the SS diaspora. And uh, we're going to start by talking about this. Now, note that according to author Glenn Infield in his book, uh, Skorzeny, Hitler's Commando, uh, one of the people recruited to work for the Egyptian intelligence service was none other than Adolf Eichmann himself, who was in charge of the so-called final solution to the Jewish problem, the liquidation of the Jews. And then after that, we're going to talk about something else. But the, from the book Skorzeny, Hitler's Commando, published in hardcover by St. Martin's Press by Glenn Infield. Quote, if there were any doubts that Skorzeny's allegiance to the United States was of an opportunist nature and temporary, they were dispelled by his actions in Egypt and the Mideast. Even his deep hatred of the Soviets was forgotten when it interfered with his personal ambitions. Egypt presented Skorzeny the opportunity to promote fascism, to establish a Nazi clique whose influence will be felt by the West German government to restore German prestige in the Mideast and to become a wealthy man. He didn't allow the opportunity to pass. The CIA, under the influence of Alan Bullis, one more time, the CIA, under the influence of Alan Bullis, selected Egyptian Army General Mohammed Naguib, capital M-A-G-U-I-B, to head the government. The takeover of the country by Naguib, when Nasser, with Nasser playing the role of a shadowy dictator in the background, opened the door wide for the three silent conspirators of Hitler's regime, Galen, Schock, and Skorzeny. As Galen stated in his memoirs, we found Arab countries particularly willing to embrace Germans with an ostensibly Nazi past, and Naguib was quick to ask for help since his revolt had the backing of the CIA, and he was aware that Galen was collaborating with the U.S. intelligence agency. His request for someone to train his security forces went to Pulak, Galen's headquarters south of Munich. Galen and Schock were in complete agreement that the man for the job was Otto Skorzeny. Bellis, aware of Skorzeny's anti-Soviet role during the immediate post-war years when the Western nations desperately needed help, concluded Skorzeny went to Egypt as Naguib's military advisor. Concurred, anyway, Skorzeny went to Egypt as Naguib's military advisor. It was a decision the United States would regret in later years. Quote, there was, of course, another reason former Nazis were quick to accept the, in, the Egyptian invitation. It once again pitted them against the Jews and the newly established Israeli nation. As the Yiddish Rundschau stated in 1951, as for Skorzeny's anti-Semitic and fascist propensities, this is undoubtedly true. Skorzeny readily admits his strong anti-Semitism. Galen, too, had reservations about the relationship between the new West German government and Israel. I have always regarded it as something of a tragedy that West Germany was inevitably dragged into an alliance with the state of Israel against the Arab countries, he stated in his memoirs. I have always regarded their traditional friendship for Germany as of immense value for our national reconstruction. 
and at the request of Alan Dulles and the CIA, we at Pulak did our best to inject life and expertise into the Egyptian Secret Service, supplying them with the former SS officers I had mentioned. This is quite a choice crew. If there was any doubt that Naguib was pro-German, his public statements cleared up the misunderstanding. I want you to believe me when I say that I have not changed the great admiration I have for the Germans. Their efficiency, their extraordinary gifts as scientists and technicians, and their loyalty are quite unique. I've been noticing all these qualities in recent times, watching the work of the German officers and experts in my army. Dr. Norodin Tarath, one of Naguib's most important supporters and later Minister of Health, was even more explicit when speaking of the Germans, particularly the Nazis. Hitler is the man of my life. The German dictator had been an ideal leader who dedicated his life to the realization of his noble ambition. He never lived for himself, but for Germany and the German people. I have always wished to live like him, unquote. Scorzini felt at ease among Egyptian officials with this attitude. His first task was to organize a staff of former SS and Wehrmacht officers between the Egyptian army and security forces. He selected carefully, making certain that each officer he brought to Egypt was a diehard Nazi, an expert military tactician, and was anti-Semitic. Among those recruited by Scorzini were SS General Oskar Dudelwanger, who had commanded a brigade composed of poachers, criminals, and men under the sentence of court-martial during the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, and whose actions against the Jews had, nicknamed, had earned in the nickname the Butcher of Warsaw. SS Colonel Ad... One more time. This, this next one's a beauty. SS Colonel Adolf Eichmann the officer Himmler charged with the destruction of millions of Jews and who later would be kidnapped from Argentina by the Israeli Secret Service and smuggled back to Israel to stand trial. SS General Wilhelm Farnbacher, Panzer General Oskar Munzel, Leopold Glein, former chief of Hitler's personal guard and Gestapo security chief of German-occupied Poland, and Joachim Bainling, former chief of the Gestapo in Dusseldorf. To handle medical problems, Skorzyny recruited Dr. Hans Eisele, E-I-S-E-L-E, who had been chief medical officer at Buchenwald Concentration Camp, and Heinrich Willermann, W-I-L-L-E-R-M-A-N, former medical director at Dachau. U.S. officials, many of them unaware that Alan Dulles had encouraged Galen to provide Naguib with German military advisors, became worried when so many infamous Nazi officers appeared in Egypt. Even Bellis became concerned when it was reported to him that Skorzeny was meeting often with Gamal Abdel Nasser, the Egyptian army lieutenant colonel who seemed to be giving more orders than Naguib. A secret letter, Embassy Dispatch 2276, from Jefferson Caffrey of the U.S. Embassy in Cairo to the Department of State in Washington, indicates that inquiries concerning Skorzeny's activities in Egypt were being conducted. Quote, on June 14th, the local press announced that Otto Scorzini had had an hour's interview with Gamal Abdel Nasser on June 12th. Aside from the calling that he was in charge of the special commando unit which kidnapped Mussolini and pointing out his experience in the training of commandos, the press gave no further details. The Council of the German Embassy states that he and his colleagues had no previous information concerning the visit. 
They are now, they are trying now through the contacts of the German military mission to find out what Skosemi is up to. The German counselor remarked that it was difficult to keep track of this individual because he resides in Spain, but the German embassy knew that when he was here the last time four or five months ago, he talked to the Egyptians about the supplying of small arms and the training of the commandos. On the general subject of the activities of German officers in Egypt, the German counselor said that a foreign office official came to Egypt recently to investigate them following Sir Winston Churchill's speech in which he mentioned their activities. And uh, skipping down, quote, The secret dispatch and others that followed from Egypt indicate that U.S. officials and even CIA agents were woefully unaware of what the Nazis were really doing in Egypt. The Abnawa government was well aware of Skorzeny's presence in Egypt and condoned his actions on behalf of the new Federal Republic of Germany. The pretended, quote, ignorance, unquote, of the German counselor was merely a face-saving move and an effort to deceive the U.S. embassy. Skorzeny was already training an Arab foreign legion in commando tactics. This secret unit was comprised of 400 former Nazis and Gestapo veterans and used a training base at Bilbis in the Delta. He also helped organize and train the first Palestine terrorists and planned their initial forays into Israel by way of the Gaza Strip about 1953 or 1954. And, uh, that is something you just will not hear about. I, it would not surprise me if that's where the Mossad uh, picked up the trail of Adolf Eichmann, when he was working as a contract agent for the Galen Organization and the CIA in Egypt. But again, that's the kind of thing, when you're talking about the history of the Israeli-Palestinian thing, and again, this goes back a 100 years, and again, Americans know nothing about the World War One, they know nothing about the Ottoman Empire, and really to understand this, you have to understand the politics of empire and uh, the what was going on in the Middle East, the fact that the British signed, uh, they, they concluded an agreement with the Jews, the Balfour Declaration. Well, you know, I'm going to give it what I, uh, in one of the, one of the, probably in the next uh, installment, I'll do a, Thumbnail synopsis of the history. It's not a lot of fun, but, uh, again, you just don't deal with this. Now note again that Adolf Eichmann himself was selected by Adolf Skorzeny and, uh, Yalmar Schott and Galen basically to, uh, work with the Egyptian intelligence service. And, uh, very similar types of uh, relationships existed, uh, with, uh, other Arab intelligence services as well. And, uh, I documented that at great length. Again, AFA program number three, for the record 558. But this is something that never enters into the discussion. You know, maybe just forget it. And if, if you bring this up to the pro-Palestinian crowd, they'll call you a racist, you name it. Now, if you want to get it from the pro-Israeli side, you just do this. This is one of the things uh, you, you, just, you don't hear about what I'm about to talk about. We're going to read now from the book Martin Borman, Nazi in Exile by Paul Manning. This is available for download for free on the SpitfireList.com website. It's also available, again, on the uh, uh, 32 gigabyte flash drive. Again, I get no money from that. Um, now, again, returning to the uh, uh, Martin Borman, Nazi in Exile. Since the founding of Israel, 
The Federal Republic of Germany had paid out 85.3 billion marks by the end of 1977 to survivors of the Holocaust. East Germany ignores any such liability. From South America, where payment must be made with subtlety, the Berman Organization has made a substantial contribution. It has drawn many of the brightest Jewish businessmen into a participatory role in the development of many of its corporations, and many of these Jews share their prosperity most generously with Israel. If their proposals are sound, they are even provided with a specially dispensed venture capital fund. I spoke with one Jewish businessman in Hartford, Connecticut. He had arrived there quite unknown several years before our conversation, but with Borman money as his leverage. Today, he is more than a millionaire, a quiet leader in the community with a certain share of his profits earmarked as always for his venture capital benefactors. This has taken place in many other instances across America and demonstrates how Borman's people operate in the contemporary commercial world in contrast to the fanciful nonsense with which Nazis are described in so much, quote, literature, unquote. So much emphasis is placed on select Jewish participation in Borman companies that when Adolf Eichmann was seized and taken to Tel Aviv to stand trial, it produced a shockwave in the Jewish and German communities of Buenos Aires. Jewish leaders informed the Israeli authorities in no uncertain terms that this must never happen again because a repetition would permanently rupture relations with the Germans of Latin America as well as with the Borman organization and cut off the flow of Jewish money to Israel. It never happened again, and the pursuit of Borman quieted down at the request of these Jewish leaders. He is residing in an Argentine safe haven, protected by the most efficient German infrastructure in history, as well as by all those whose prosperity depends on his well-being. Personal invitation is the only way to reach him. And to give you uh, some influence, an idea of the influence uh, that the Borman Group, again, I believe will prove to be the decisive element in human affairs on this planet, and I believe uh, 200 years Hitler's birthday will be an international holiday. I don't think there'll be a whole lot of people left at that point, but uh, who knows. Uh, to give you an idea, again, of the kind of clout uh, the Borman Group has, once again, we're turning to the book uh, Martin Borman, Nazi in Exile, a revealing insight into this international financial and industrial network was given me by a member of the Borman organization residing in West Germany. Meyer Lansky, he said, the financial advisor to the Las Vegas, Miami underworld sent a message to Borman through my West German SS contact. Lansky promised that if he received a piece of Borman's action, he would keep the Israeli agents off Borman's back. Quote, I have a very good relation with the Israeli secret police, was his claim although he was to be kicked out of Israel when his presence became too noted, and also with the urging of Borman's security chief in South America. At the time, Lansky was in the penthouse suite of Jerusalem's King David Hotel, in which he owned stock. He had fled to Israel to evade the U.S. federal warrant for his arrest. He sent his message to Borman through his bagman in Switzerland, John Pullman, also wanted in the U.S. on a federal warrant. Lansky told Pullman to make this offer, quote, which he can't refuse, unquote. The offer was forwarded to Buenos Aires, where it was greeted with laughter. When the laughter died down, it was a place with action. Meyer was evicted from Israel and was told by Swiss authorities to stay out of their country, so he flew to South America. 
There he offered any president who would give him asylum a cool one million dollars in cash. He was turned down everywhere and had to continue his flight to Miami, where U.S. Marshals alerted were waiting to take him into custody. Uh, good luck. Now, notice that when it comes to Adolf Eichmann, there is... Uh, any, no, you never hear from the pro-Israeli, the pro-Palestinian side about the uh, Nazi SS Eichmann mission uh, to Egypt and the other profound Nazi connections to not only the, the Arab countries but also the uh, specifically the Palestinian national movement. And you will never hear from anyone about Mormon Jews. And aside from Mormon Jews, there are other fascist elements within the. Uh, Zionist movement, which have uh, achieved, they have become ascendant. And in the person of Benjamin Netanyahu, I think you've got someone who uh, has both. And uh, one of the things that uh, I'm going to do uh, in this uh, series is to read uh, some... Things I don't think I'll put this on the air, but I in I guess this was oh I don't know where this is a in 2016 I did a food for thought post and I'm going to uh, record that information. Um, it uh, you know the there's so much there's so many things to talk about here. Um, I think maybe what I'll do in the um, I'll do in this program is do basically put in a, a thumbnail synopsis. Of the entire history, and people, I'll put in a few links, but people can, they can do their own research. Because again, there are other things going on, and I think what's happening with the coronavirus, first of all, simply the loss of life from that one's going to go into the billions of entries. It is going to turn around our entire civilization because the life expectancy of the human race is in decline, is going down. And that means you won't have to pay out nearly as much retirement benefits. You won't have to worry about old folks and medical problems. Again, it's a eugenic solution. And it, it, it's just astounding that this is taking place. I can't believe that I'm seeing it, but these are wonderful times, aren't they? And then during World War I, uh, it's worth noting that uh, the British Empire made agreements with both the Arabs and the Jews, and broke both of them. Uh, the Balfour Declaration, to make a long story short, uh, the World War I was a combat, was an, an inter-empire war, and what is now, you know, Israel or the Palestinian territory. Again, I don't like the term Palestine, because it's derived from the Philistine, you know, don't the Philistine, sorry. But, uh, what is called Palestine or Israel, whatever you want to call it. It was part of the Ottoman Empire. And uh, the Ottoman Empire was aligned with the Austro-Hungarian Empire and uh, the Wilhelminian Empire of Kaiser Wilhelm II in the war against the uh, Allied powers. And uh, the British sought basically to uh, use the already growing Jewish population in what the Jews call Israel and call Israel and what the uh, Palestinians call Palestine uh, as a wedge against the Ottoman Empire. At the same time, they also, uh, uh, in, the, in the person of Captain T.E. Lawrence, led an Arab revolt 
against the Ottoman Empire with the, the promise that the Arabs would be given their independence at the end of World War One. And the British also concluded an agreement with the French, the Sykes-Picot Agreement, in which they agreed to divvy up the imperial properties in the Middle East after the end of the war, which they did, uh, Britain and uh, France divvied up uh, key parts of the old Ottoman Empire in uh, that area. Now, uh, the what the, that part of the Ottoman Empire, what had been the Ottoman Empire, and what then became part of the British Empire, and is today again called Israel, called Palestine, whatever you want, uh, that was dominated by clans in the days of the Ottoman Empire. And there were three basic clans who had influence in that area. There was the Husseini clan, the Hashemite clan, and the Nashashibi clan. Only the Husseini clan had influence in all three of, of Islam's holiest places, Jerusalem, Mecca, and Medina. And so for that reason, the British selected Hajimin al-Husseini uh, to basically become their de facto uh, leader in uh, Palestine, uh, in, in their, their uh, couple, became the colony, British colony of Palestine. Hajimin al-Husseini began his career with the Turkish army in World War I when they were committing genocide against the Armenians. And uh, eventually, uh, he gravitated toward Germany. One of the, the things about the about international fascism is that some of the most important of the fascist movements present on the earth today began during the period of colonialism because when uh, fascism had its first go-round, uh, the imperial powers of Europe and basically colonies were still very much uh, going on. And it was in, it was because in many of those colonial territories uh, that uh, some of the fascist uh, powers were able to help to germinate fascist movements as a means of wresting those colonial territories and basically overthrowing those empires. Uh, in the, the Middle East, for example, again, Hajamin al-Husseini uh, eventually ascended to becoming a major general in the Waffen-SS. Uh, there were three Muslim Waffen-SS divisions in the Balkans alone, and he also did propaganda work for the Japanese in uh, Asia. On the Zionist side, uh, the, war, the period between the wars uh, saw the growth of the Beitar. Now, now Militant Zionists do not like hearing the Beitar described as fascist any more than they like hearing Vladimir Yabotinsky or Zayev Yabotinsky as he remained himself uh, described as a fascist. I basically would consider him a fascist for a variety of reasons. He did give lip service to the fact that there should be a rotating presidency in the Zionist state between an Arab and a Jew, but basically he did not feel that uh, workers in the new Zionist state should have the right to strike. That is uh, the epitome of corporatist economics. That is what Fab Mussolini called fascism. And uh, beyond that, uh, Vladimir Yabotinsky was a racist. He felt that Jews of European extraction were, were superior to those of Middle Eastern extraction, and those were his boys. Beyond that, he uh, was forming an alliance with one of the 
most brutal pogromists in uh, Eastern Europe, and also one of the central elements in Ukrainian fascism, a guy named Semyon Petlyura, P-E-T-L-I-U-R-A, the OUNB successful organizations in power in Ukraine today, cite Petlyura as one of the, uh, one of their, uh, role models, so to speak. He was a brutal pogromist and finally was shot to death in 1925 in Paris by the, by a, a Jewish expatriate whose family had been murdered by Petlyura's pogromists. And the guy was basically found innocent and Paris between the World Wars was not exactly a conducive um, environment for Jews, but the fact of the matter is that um, after what Petlyura had done to the Jewish population, uh, this guy murdering Petlyura was viewed as perfectly excusable. The mere fact, as far as I'm concerned, that uh, Yabotinsky would uh, advocate a line with the, the likes of Petlyura completely disqualifies him. And beyond that, uh, the Beitar took military training at Italy at Mussolini's Naval Cadet School. They uh, were reviewed by Mussolini, and uh, they sang the fascist anthem. And in addition, the Beitar also collected scrap metal to aid the Italian war effort after the invasion of Mussolini, uh, after the invasion of Ethiopia by Mussolini. Uh, it's worth noting, too, that... Um, Yabotinsky's personal secretary was Benzion Netanyahu. Uh, Benzion Netanyahu was also the pall, a pallbearer at Yabotinsky's funeral. He was the father and political mentor to drumroll fanfare, Benjamin Netanyahu. And uh, the Beitar, again, they collected scrap metal for uh, Mussolini's war effort against Ethiopia. They uh, sang the Italian fascist anthem when they were reviewed by Mussolini. And Yabotinsky himself published an article in the Dea Zinisca, the Italian uh, Zionist paper, indicating that this was actually an ideology, uh, an, uh, an alliance of ideology, not mere uh, realpolitik. And that's something that has continued in the late 1990s. Both the Republican Party and the Likud Party of Israel sent delegates to the National Convention of the Alianza Nazionale, the Italian fascist party led by Gianfranco Fini, and it was the successor to the Italian Black Shirts. And again, the, the uh, Likud Party sent Udi Cohen as a representative, as did the GOP. There was another uh, very powerful element, uh, fascist element in the Zionist movement. It was the Stern Gang. Uh, For a time, uh, the Stern Gang uh, involved Malachim Begin and also Yitzhak Shamir. And for a time, they sought a military alliance uh, with Nazi Germany as a means of getting the British out of the Middle East. It never went too far, but it was a very interesting... uh, an interesting proposition, and uh, again, it, this is this, this was not uh, an isolated phenomenon. And again, the the Likud party sent a representative to the uh, National Convention of the Italian Fascist Party. Um, 
The most important element in the fascist element in the Zionist movement, in my opinion, is the Borman Jews. And in Netanyahu, as we will see, we'll probably have to go into this, in fact, we'll go into this in our next program. Uh, Netanyahu appears to bridge the gap between the Beitar and the Borman Jews. And uh, again, it's just, uh, it's quite remarkable. I mean, I'm talking about the, the latest conflict. I'm just going to, uh, I'll maybe stick in a few links, but, uh, I, well, before I even get into the history of the, the, this, um, this particular, uh, conflict, I guess I, let's just go into that. That's probably the best thing to do. Um, there is firm evidence at this point that the Israelis had advance warning of what was going to happen on October 7th. Uh, their own intelligence services detected this. They said they didn't believe it was possible. The Egyptians warned them something was coming up. The CIA was aware of it. I'm not aware that they actually warned Israel, but they probably did. And even freelance photographers were aware of this. So there was a lot of advance warning. Uh, there was a highly provocative incident in which a group of right-wing settlers of uh, academics of similar ideology and also right-wing rabbis uh, basically uh, paraded or demonstrated at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, one of the holiest sites in Islam. It's also uh, viewed as the site of the uh, temples uh, that uh, were built when Israel, before Israel and the Roman diaspora took place. Um, so both the Jews and the Israelis, uh, both the Jews and the Muslims, uh, claim that area as a holy spot. But the invading of the Al-Aqsa Mosque by those right-wing Israelis can only be seen as provocative and uh, uh, humiliating. Uh, I suspect it may have been intended uh, to trigger what was already known to be an incipient Hamas or an impending Hamas operation. Again, the Israelis had advanced warning of that. Uh, one of the things that's so interesting is that there was shorting in the Israeli stock market in the run-up to the Hamas war. Somebody was aware of this and made a lot of money. We're going to talk about the Israeli stock market, the Israeli oligarchy. We're going to talk about uh, Netanyahu's links to peace and quote marine systems and so forth in our next program. But uh, I suspect that this was... The, the war was envisioned by Israel a long time in advance. I don't believe they were taken surprise by this. I think they knew about it. And uh, the notion that they were taken by surprise, I think this may very well have been deliberately allowed to happen. It's been discussed as Israel's 9-11. It's worth noting that the that sh- large-scale shorting took place on the New York Stock Exchange and the commodities markets on November 22nd, 1963, also took place on September 11th, 2001. And again, the Israeli stock market was shorted badly in the run-up to the Gaza war. And it appears that the shorting was done on the Israeli side. So somebody knew this was coming, and somebody knew to make a whole lot of money off of this. And I think in the person of Benjamin Netanyahu, we see the merging of the Beitar with the uh, Borman Jews that I've spoken about. Again, you 
never hear anyone talk about that but me. And, you know, I just don't come for a whole lot in a very small part of the world. Uh, one of the things that's also very interesting is that uh, Israel has been funding Hamas through Carver for years to the tunes of many billions of dollars. Carver uh, is one of the homes for the Muslim Brotherhood, and indeed Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad are two of the Palestinian offshoots of the Muslim Brotherhood, an Islamic fascist organization dating back to the late 1920s. It was allied with Nazi Germany and uh, fascist Italy. Um, that is more than a little interesting because Hamas basically is uh, not only one of the Palestinian branches of the Muslim Brotherhood, but it is essentially a Nazi organization. Uh, and if that sounds harsh, uh, all you have to do is to look at their treasure. And I believe that Israel is funding, uh, you know, uh, let's just say the Israeli right is funding Hamas for exactly this reason. They make a perfect vehicle. I, as an old short order cook, you know, if you want to make poached eggs, you put a little bit of vinegar in the water. That keeps the egg from spreading out and it keeps the yolk coalescing. And Hamas, I think, could be almost viewed in a similar fashion to the vinegar in the water that the eggs, the, the Zionist eggs are going to be poached in, so to speak. But I'm going to read the Hamas charter. This is what the Israelis were supporting. For our struggle against the Jews is extremely wide-ranging and grave, so much so that it will need all the loyal efforts we can wield to be followed by further steps and reinforced by successive battalions from the multifarious Arab and Islamic world until the enemies are defeated and Allah's victory prevails. The Prophet, prayer and peace be upon him, said, The time will not come until Muslims will fight the Jews and kill them, until the Jews hide behind rocks and trees with the cry, O Muslim, there is a Jew hiding behind me, come and kill him. The enemies have been scheming for a long time, and they have consolidated their schemes in order to achieve what they have achieved. They took advantage of key elements in unfolding events and accumulated a huge and influential material wealth which they put to the service of implementing their dream. This wealth permitted them to take over control of the world media, such as news agencies, the press, publication houses, broadcasting, and the like. They also used this wealth to stir revolutions in various parts of the globe in order to fulfill their interests and pick the fruits. They stood behind the French and the communist revolutions and behind most of the revolutions we hear about here and there. They also used the money to establish clandestine organizations which are spreading around the world in order to destroy societies and carry out Zionist interests. Such organizations are the Freemasons, Rotary Clubs, Lions Clubs, B'nai B'rith, and the like. All of them are destructive spying organizations. I bet you didn't know that, aren't the Freemasons, the Rotary Clubs, the Lions Clubs, all Zionist fronts. Man, those Jews, they are Tricky bastards. You never know what they're going to come up with. I mean, this this basically, again, this is pretty much straight Nazi ideology. Continuing, they also used the money to take over control of the imperialist states and made them colonize many countries in order to exploit the wealth of these countries and spread their corruption therein. As regards local and world wars, it has come to pass, and no one objects, that they stood behind World War I so as to wipe out the Islamic Caliphate. 
They collected material gains and took control of many sources of wealth. They obtained the Balfour Declaration and established the League of Nations in order to rule the world by means of that organization. They also stood behind World War II, where they collected immense benefits from trading with war materials and prepared for the establishment of their state. They inspired the establishment of the United Nations Security Council, the United Nations and the Security Council to replace the League of Nations in order to rule the world by their intermediary. Now the pro-Israeli side generally views the UN as pro-Arab. In fact, I've heard that said explicitly by some, but that's the way it goes. There was no war that broke out anywhere without their fingerprints on it. Their scheme has been laid out in the protocols of the elders of Zion, and their present conduct is the proof of what was said there. Within the circle of the conflict with world Zionism, the Hamas regards itself the spearhead of the avant-garde. It joins its efforts to all those who were active on the Palestinian scene, but more steps need to be taken by the Arab and Islamic peoples, and Islamic associations throughout the Arab and Islamic world in order to make possible the next round of the Jews, the merchants of war. Well, that is absolutely perfect from a cynical right-wing or a Zionist viewpoint because, you know, what, what could better drive Jews in, in the direction of uh, seeking the protection of the likes of Netanyahu than that? But Israel has been funding Hamas through copper platoons of a lot of money. And, um, you know, we watch Hamas and uh, we watch people defend them. And again, I have absolutely no use for Hamas. I have no use for the PLO. Uh, the Palestinian leadership has always been in bed with the Nazis. However, the Palestinian leadership is not the Palestinian people. And the slaughter that is going on, it just, I don't know, I don't have a television, I don't watch television. And... I've been a blue-collar worker. Many listeners know I've, I've, I've worked a day job to support myself most of my life. I've been a blue-collar worker, and I can think in physical terms. I don't know. Yeah, I'm just watching the footage. I mean, I don't watch television, but there's on, on the Internet, there's a lot of footage of the war there, and it's just, you know, blasting a defenseless civilian population with 2,000-pound bunker buster bombs. You know, it, 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 it's a horror show, and it has to stop, and it's... And it, what Israel is doing there is genocide, and it fits the international de- de- definition. And again, maybe, you know, I, I hate talking about the subject because I just get it from both sides. Uh, the pro-Palestinian side, the you know, Zionist, like, like that crap comment by that uh, listener. I'm going to reread it. This is what I generally get from the pro-Palestinian side. Dave, why aren't you talking about the ongoing Holocaust in Palestine, leaving 10,000 Zionist figures, or 20,000 Palestinian figures dead, and many tens of thousands of wounded, maimed, and dying? Give me a good reason why I shouldn't drop my Patreon support for you. Can you really be that soft on the state of, quote, Israel, unquote? Well, of course, no one talks about the bombing Jews. No one talks about the fascist elements in the Zionist movement by and large. Some do, but you never hear about things like the Scorzini mission, and you never hear about the bombing Jews. You never hear about Eichmann. In any event, we'll continue with some of this discussion. We will continue with this discussion in part two, and I'm going to read uh, where I think that uh, what I think is actually going on with Netanyahu and Israel. I have not put that on the air, but there is a uh, food for thought post that I did in 2016. I'm going to read that into the record. Uh, links. 
at the top of each written for the record description at the top of each food for thought post. One of them will enable you to get the 32 gigabyte flash drive of all of my life's work on that, printed and recorded, plus a, an old, a mini library of old anti-fascist books on easy to download PDF files. Um, Again, I got no money from that. Another link will enable you to uh, subscribe to the WFMU podcast. And uh, please do uh, check the, the spitfirelist.com website regularly for comments by Parafractal. This concludes for the record program number 316, Fireside Rant about the Gaza War and the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict, Part 1. This is being recorded on December 15th, 2023. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun.